I mean, if, if Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, I, I say go for it, Elon. You know, um, I don't think he'll like it when he gets there. Um, I mean, as many people have pointed out who know more about Mars than I do, uh, there's no way to transform the Earth into something as terrible as Mars, you know, no matter how bad things get. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, our guest is journalist and author Elizabeth Colbert, whose work focuses heavily on climate change. Her books on the subject include Field Notes from a Catastrophe, The Sixth Extinction, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and her most recent 2021 book, Under a White Sky. In this episode, we explore the content and ideas that Elizabeth puts forth in these books with a particular focus on what kind of changes that climate change is causing to the world and the ways in which humanity has been responding, for better or worse. As a quick note, I do want to let you know there are a few moments of unfortunate background noise that arise sporadically during this conversation that were unavoidable, but they're minimal, they pass quickly, and they really shouldn't detract too much from the conversation. So please don't let those deter you from enjoying this full episode. And with that being said, let's just go ahead and jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Elizabeth Colbert. What a start. Uh, I think a good place is, since you've been writing books about climate change for at least 15 years now, I think, um, this is obviously a subject that's very important to you. Uh, was this a attraction that you had ever since you were a kid, or was there a, a moment that like sparked the interest that really made you realize that this was a thing you wanted to focus on? Because in a way, you were kind of ahead of the curve. I mean, there's definitely been people who have been concerned about the planet for a long time, but I don't think the climate change conversation really kicked off until around the time maybe your first book came out. Well, um, I was one of those people who was very influenced by Bill McKibben's early work on um, climate change, uh, The End of Nature, which I have a first edition of, actually. I went right out and bought it. And that was back in 89. So, you know, this quote-unquote conversation has been going on for a long time. And then when I myself went to the New Yorker, um, Bill's book ran for the most most of it, much of it ran originally in the New Yorker. Um, I uh, by that point, Bill Bill was not at the magazine for a while, and I sort of thought, well, and that and there's a lot of still debate at that point. This was in the early 2000s, you know. Even among scientists, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, how, how significant was this going to be? How big a deal was it? And um, I sort of got this crazy idea that I was going to settle this um, debate by writing a three-part series that is what became Field Notes from a Catastrophe. And um, at, at around the same time that Field Notes came out or a year later, a year after the series came out, but when it came out as a book, um, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out. That that was very big. So I think that was, you know, I'd, I'd love to take credit um, for having changed the conversation, but I think, you know, 
it's it, there were a bunch of things that happened sort of simultaneously that uh, did did it get a fair amount of attention did not you know lead to the kind of action you might hope for but but did sort of get some attention for the issue mm-hmm. and a key theme of your work and all of this throughout is the idea of the anthropocene could you talk a little bit about what that is for people who might not be familiar with the term and kind of what it entails sure so the anthropocene refers to um really the idea that humans have become the dominant force on planet earth a force that will um is leaving a a pretty a permanent geological record you know the way we're changing the climate i I, you know scientists are very actively looking at there it turns out you know there are all sorts of ways in which our transformation of the planet will leave a permanent geological mark and so that's really the idea of the anthropocene and it's will be taken up at some point. Um, I think the pandemic may have um, delayed it as a formal question in geology. You know, should we rename our current geological epoch, which is which is formally known as the Holocene? Mm-hmm. And what are some of the major impacts that you've seen or the particular areas, I suppose, because you've gotten to do a lot of travel, see a lot of different projects, talk to a lot of people from all walks of life. Are there really strong recurring themes in terms of the places that you're seeing the impact being the most drastic from climate change? Well, I think we're now seeing, um, you know, virtually everywhere. So when I started out in this, um, on this beat, if you want to call it that, uh, the impacts were really much most dramatic and continue to be most dramatic in the Arctic. And this is a a phenomenon that was predicted early on. Um, it's called the Arctic amplification. So there, the um, temperature increases, you know, you will read about these, you know, crazy temperatures in Greenland and Alaska, and that's a function of a bunch of different things. But yeah, so the, the impacts are still on the, the temperature increases. You can look at maps where they um, show you the temperature increases, you know, and you worldwide say since you know 1900 or whatever and and you'll see the big bands uh are in the arctic really you know red red so that's where the greatest temperature change has been and that reflects a bunch of reasons why the arctic is is warming faster than the rest of the planet one of which is that we're you know we're melting a lot of the ice and ice is very reflective you melt it back to water or land that's much more um absorptive so you're you're cha- you're really changing the heat balance very dramatically now but nowadays you could go you know i can go to my backyard you know where we didn't have frost for uh until i guess basically very recently uh as recently as you know 20 30 years ago we would have had a frost in in here where i am in western new england you know definitely by equinox or, you know, around the end of September. So, you know, a month of no, you know, just everywhere you look, there are signs, signs, signs that are getting really very difficult to overlook um, that the climate is changing. Yeah. Aside from some of the more common things that we think about, like the ocean and, uh, you know, permafrost and things like that, there's a lot to be said about the flora and fauna and the biodiversity that we're losing. What are some of the impacts that are coming from that that I think kind of go 
uh, often unseen or untalked about because of the, you know, the other larger talking points? Well, yeah, I mean, they're huge. You know, now coral reefs, I guess they have gotten a certain amount of attention. They are really getting hit hard, really hard by warm water temperatures. That is a huge, huge issue. And coral reefs are really crucial ecosystems for marine life. So um, that's a that's a big one. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, tr- trees, forest diebacks that are occurring because the pests that, you know, bark beetles and things like that, that um, used to be like in the American West, um, used to be, used to have one cycle every year, one, you know, basically they could, they could only reproduce once a year. Now they can do it twice a year, let's say, and they have a much longer season where they're active. And um, so you're, you know, you're seeing huge forest dieback. So, um, you know, these fires that we're getting that, you know, have, have massive impacts, obviously on anything that lives, Um, you're seeing, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, insect pests that, so, you know, moving farther North, so that has having a big impact in a lot of places. Um, so the list is, you know, almost endless. You're seeing, uh, you know, drought habitat change very radically. Uh, if you're a, you know, a frog or an amphibian and something that depended on a, you know, watering hole that isn't there anymore, you know, that's huge. But, you know, most of these impacts on a, you know, very, fine grain scale you know we're not even aware we're not really even keeping track very carefully yeah a big part of our focus at singularity is on helping what's called the rising billion and that's the people from you know like africa and india who are starting to come online in the global scene and are starting to try to meet the western standard of living what (laughs) what is that impact going to be in your mind because it doesn't seem like we can support a billion more people embracing the Western standard of living, even though we want to help uh, alleviate issues that are taking place in those areas? Well, you've, you've, you've gotten to the heart of the matter. I mean, how can we uh, both meet our ecological goals? You know, sustainable development is sort of the buzzword. And I think that if you look at things, you know, honestly, you have to say, well, if a billion people um, are are going to and should and deserve to live better uh, than you know those of us who are already consuming way more than our fair share uh, probably can't continue to do that or definitely can't continue to do that uh, unless you want to you know wreck the whole planet and that tension that idea that some people a lot of people we're not talking about a trivial number of people we're not just talking about you know the Jeff you know, businesses of the world, we were talking about all of us, you and I, who are sitting here today, and most of your listeners, I suspect, um, are going to have to give up to something that is not a popular political uh, take. <laughs> so I'm not in politics, so I can say it. What do you think the the reconciliation is there between governments and big corporations having to make some big changes, uh, maybe policies that really force their hand versus the individual, you know, is, is the paper straw going to matter if we're doing government funded oil? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of the things that people focus on, as you say, the, the straw, I mean, straws are bad paper straws, not so much plastic straws, you know, end up in the oceans. 
you know, plastic pollution in the ocean is 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 a, is a is a is a serious problem. I do not want to trivialize that at all. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, the, the the you're not taking a straw. I can assure you is not you know solving this problem. I advise you not to take the straw, but that's not going to do it. And you're not drinking the, from the plastic water bottle. None of those things are going to do it. So you know, as you are implying, we have some pretty big changes, and you know, many people have concluded. And once again, I am, you know, going to punt. I'm not an expert here. I'm not going to say, like, I know what's right here. But many people have concluded, well, the whole economic system has to go. We can't have a system, you know, profit-driven, extractive economy when, you know, the world is crumbling. Now, you know, that's a lot easier said. You know, we need a new system. Okay, what is that new system? Uh, it's a lot easier said than done. And as you point out, there are a lot of people who would like a better standard of living, the kind of standard of living that, you know, extractive capitalism has brought to many of us. So these are huge issues. They're not small issues. They're they're huge issues. They are, in my view, the issue. Yeah. So it sounds like in a lot of ways you would say that to fix climate change really comes down to you know, changing the human condition most fundamentally in terms of how we interface with the world right now. Well, I mean, this is the question. Once again, I don't want to, um, you know, there's one school of thought that says, um, you know, actually capitalism can solve climate change. We're technologically very smart. We need to shift out our energy systems. We need to be a lot smarter about the way we do things. And we could both raise the standard of living for a billion people and um, reduce certainly our, our carbon output you know, to zero. We could do that if we put our minds to it. Um, the question of whether that is true or not, right, I can't answer that. But there is a school of thought out there that that is true. And in fact, that that's our best hope. And then there's another school of thought that, you know, as long as you keep the same economic system, you're just going to reproduce the problems that we have and perhaps uh, reproduce them in, you know, in different, maybe not reproduce the same problems, but produce new problems, right? So, you know, I can give you an example of you, you know, you could switch to all electric cars that would have a huge carbon impact, but you'd have to get the ingredients for the electric cars and that might lead to whole new horrors around the world you know so these are these are super super difficult questions and anyone who tells you that they have the answer to them you should be extremely suspicious of absolutely so in under the white sky i think that's a big focus right is these interventions that we take part in in a lot of ways technological solutions end up creating other problems can you talk a little bit about what you came across in your, uh, you know, travels and your research on this, th- these subjects? Yeah, sure. So, so the, the sort of idea behind the theme of the book under white sky is, you know, we keep doing things. Sometimes we do them purposefully. Sometimes we do them inadvertently that, you know, to get back to this idea of the Anthropocene that really radically dramatically changed the planet, um, either on a local regional scale or now with climate change on a global scale. And then we, our tendency is to go search for the next technology that's going to 
solve this or we're going to so we've we've made, created a problem with our technology we're going to get a new technology we're going to layer that on top of the old technology we're going to solve it and a very very good example of this and it's going to be a huge issue i can assure your listeners that they're only going to hear more and more about this in coming years is uh, carbon dioxide removal so um in the book i visit a plant in iceland it's since actually expanded even since i've been there where they are actively taking CO2 out of the air. Um, and the idea here is, well, we've already put too much CO2 into the air. It's not like we're going to put too much CO2. We already have. And that is true. Um, and as we go on, we're not stopping our emissions tomorrow, no matter what anyone tells you, that is not happening. So, you know, the more we put in, the more we're going to have to take out. And a lot of the projections, if you hear a projection, like, you know, the world still has a chance to keep average global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees C. I agree that the, I know this is getting a little nerdy, but all those projections already include a lot of carbon dioxide removal. So we are depending on this technology that really barely, barely exists at this point. And that's what we tend to do. Like something is going to save us. And the reason we have faith for that in that, I believe, is because, well, here we are. There are 8 billion of us there have been many, many predictions of doom in the past, and yet humanity, there are more humans than ever before. So we must have some magical solution always up our sleeve. And maybe we do. You know, I, I can't tell you. Yeah, I mean, there there is also seems to be this hopeful notion in, in under the white sky that also in under a white sky that also suggests that technology or some kind of intervention is necessary. Like we do have to do some kind of engineering task, right, to also solve these issues? You know, I, I'm pretty careful in the book not to take a stand as to whether, you know, these interventions are net positive or negative. Um, you know, the ones that we're planning to to do to, you know, counteract our previous interventions. But I, the one thing that I would say is, you know, one of the themes of the book too, I think, is in a lot of cases, we don't feel we have a choice. You know, what are the choices here? They're not really um, this idea of doing nothing, you know, like let's let the world heal itself or, you know, whatever, that, that that's not going to work when, you know, you've already put up too much CO2. So we are, feel compelled and probably are compelled um, to do something. Yeah. Amongst maybe all of the interventions that you explored or maybe ones that you didn't talk about in the book, are there any initiatives or projects or technologies that you're particularly hopeful about things that you think are going to be worth investigating more or maybe have the best chance to create an impact? Well, I, I do think we really need to look at, um, you know, agriculture, how we, how we um, grow our food. There's a, there is a lot of potential to do that a lot better to actually, you know, use certain, you know, store more carbon in soils, for example. Um, and that's that's huge. And you know, people have pointed to, uh, you know, we need to reforest a lot of the world or let the world reforest itself. Um, you know, once again, all of these things are a lot easier said than done. Um, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of talk about reforestation, for example. Um, but the fact is, the world continues to deforest. So you know. Um, so, but I do think those are very 
important that we should certainly be 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 trying to use both agriculture, you know, land use as a way to um, both minimize our emissions and also potentially, you know, draw us down some CO2. But it's not going to be sufficient. Once again, you do have to be careful when people throw around numbers that are too 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 rosy. Has that? Yeah. What do you think about efforts like uh, the ones Elon Musk is undertaking? The, you know, things like uh, certainly Solar City and Tesla, but also like Mars. You know, a lot of people are worried that SpaceX is this kind of escapist uh, tactic for billionaires who are ready to just let the planet die. But others would argue that those efforts create technology that could help us on Earth. What do you think about efforts like that? Do you think we we should focus more on the planet or do you think there's going to be benefits from these larger projects? Um, I'm really down on Mars. I think Mars <laughs> is like, um, I mean, if, if Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, I, I say go for it, Elon. You know, um, I don't think he'll like it when he gets there. Um, and there's just no way. Uh, I mean, as many people have pointed out, who know more about Mars than I do, uh, there's no way to transform the earth into something as terrible as Mars, you know, no matter how bad things get, uh, because, you know, A, we have air pressure here, which turns out to be really important if you've ever, you know, tried to go into a no pressure, a no atmosphere um, planet, you'll find yourself basically exploding. So not a good idea. Um, And there's oxygen, which, you know, uh, really is, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty damn basic. So the idea that, you know, billionaires are going to escape to Mars, you know, good, good luck with that. And, uh, the money that we're spending, I, I think, you know, the idea that we're going to figure out something useful for earth, I mean, maybe, but in the meantime, we're going to have wasted a lot of money and carbon emissions, to be honest, also that, uh, we didn't need to and diverted a lot of attention. Um, but, you know, Elon doesn't ask for my advice. How's that? But <laughs> I think this whole space race and putting people into space for fun is sick, really, mm-hmm. actually a sign of this kind of um, depravity of moral depravity of our time. And in spite of all that, are are you hopeful, given all that you've seen? Like, do you do you feel like we're making progress in a tangible way? Um, no, I don't think we're making progress in a tangible way. I mean, I think there have been many, I mean, the hopeful things are, I will point to the hopeful things um, in the interest of objectivity, you know, uh, the price of certain forms of, you know, solar energy, wind energy have come way down. Um, and that suggests that it's possible if we put our minds to it, if we really did put our minds to it, that we could find ways to do things that would make a you know significant difference um but you know if you look at what's actually happening uh you know yes a lot of solar is going up a lot of winds going up but a lot of fossil fuels are being burned still uh and the basic energy mix you know of the planet has not changed very much since the 1980s so still we're still getting basically like I think it was around 80% of our primary energy from fossil fuels. And, and that has been just stuck. Now, could it, could it change? You know, it could, but it, we are talking about concerted effort. And as you and I speak, 
you know, in Washington, there's a debate over a bill that is probably the only bill we'll get, you know, that will have clean energy provisions. It's very watered down already. It's been very watered down. Uh, so I don't see how we get from here to there, given politics, not necessarily technology, but given politics. Yeah. What do you think has to like change in terms of either the public perception or the politics around this? Because when there's very few things that I think about and that I actually almost have like anxiety over. But if I, for instance, watch like a, a documentary on climate change, I start to get mad and just feel kind of hopeless. And like, it's, it's a, tr it's a truly, it's one of the only things that truly like seems to shake me. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be like with that feeling, I don't understand how we're not doing more. Like why, why are we not more as a culture focused on this? Do you think what has to change to wake us up? I honestly don't know. I mean, you know, people used to say, well, something's going to wake us up, you know, some big natural disaster, you know, we're going to watch California burn, we're going to watch, you know, but, but the, clearly that's not the case. Although I do think that, I mean, I think a really interesting test would be to go to communities that have been devastated by climate related disasters and sort of track attitudes over time. That would be very interesting. And I don't know if anyone's done that. Uh, you'd have to have a before, you'd have to know which communities you have to get a hit. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, what, what we've discovered, you know, in my opinion, once again, one woman's opinion during COVID is that people's, you know, capacity for um, self-delusion, <laughs> you know, how many stories have we all read about, like people on the respirator saying, you know, really should have gotten that vaccine, um, you know, people's people's capacities to believe things that unfortunately are simply not true uh, are really, really strong. And, you know, you know, and there's also a, a worry and I, I, I share it. I do share it. Um, you know, that people look at climate change even, and then they get, you know, very worried as you do. And you're really worried, but you feel impotent because it is such a, and that people shut down. They're like, well, you know, what can I do? Uh, what can anyone do? What can one country do? And all those things are are true, you know, but they don't, in my view, really absolve us of the responsibility to do something. Yeah. On that note, what do you think is something that a single individual could do? Like if there was one thing, you know, we talked about the straws may not be the most effective, maybe more concerted efforts really are necessary, but for the person who is feeling I want to do something with my limited capacity. Are there things that you've seen that have that might be the particularly uh, impactful or helpful? Yeah, I mean, where do most of our emissions come from as, you know, sort of individuals? They're how we, you know, how we heat our homes and cool them, uh, how we travel. Um, so those 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 are biggies, you know. So, you know, putting solar panels on your roof. I mean, that is a, or, or, or you know, if you are living in an apartment, you can, in a lot of places, you know, you do pay a premium for clean energy, but you are uh, participating then hopefully in, not hopefully you are in this energy transition that has to happen. So those are things that, that, that people can do. And I, I know solar, solar panels have come way, way down in price. They, they pay for themselves now uh, in about seven years, I think. So, you know, um, 
it's not something only people with a lot of money can do at this point. Um, so that's something, that's one thing. Um, you know, uh, how, how we cool our homes too and, and heat them. Um, you know, there are fantastic new technologies, once again, heat pumps that are really much more efficient than the, you know, ways that we have heated tended to heat and cool in the past. Um, so those are another thing that people can look at. Those are still somewhat pricey, but are coming down in price. Um, and certainly in parts of the world where people have big air conditioning bills right now are probably worth looking at. Um, you know, how we travel, what, you know, what, how do you, how do you get around? Do you take public transportation? If you, if you have to drive and many Americans, unfortunately do because our public transportation is pretty bad. Um, you know, what kind of car are you driving? Um, uh, we've had, you know, price, gas prices have been, you know, in this country over the last several years, you know, kind of ridiculously cheap. And that has encouraged a lot of people to, unfortunately, buy cars that are way bigger than they need, um, you know, make your next car an electric car, you know. Um, so there are those kinds of choices. Um, you know, do you need to take that trip? Do you need to fly? Flying is very carbon intensive. Uh, so those are the things I think, those are the biggies for individuals that uh, are top, top, sort of top of the list. Mm -hmm. And from like a government policy perspective, are there are there certain policies that you think we could enact that would really be big game changers? Oh, yeah. I mean, we could, you know, we could tax carbon. We could impose a tax that would, um, you know, instead of an income tax or a you know, the way we fund things now, a payroll tax, you need to substitute a carbon tax. Uh, and that would, um, you know, dramatically change the way it would shift the way businesses do business because everything would have to be measured in terms of, of, of well, or, you know, is that what we want to do? Because, um, and if you made it, you know, so that it had some actual bite, uh, it would be, um, it, would, it would change things very dramatically. I, I believe, and I, I think it's hard to argue with that. Now, you know, there's a lot of opposition to that for all sorts of reasons. Um, and some of it comes from people who argue that, you know, a carbon tax is regressive, which um, I don't even think is really honestly that true because, you know, in carbon use tends to scale with income. But, um, but yes, yeah, certain people who are, you know, dependent on, on their trucks or whatever and are, low income, but you could easily design these systems so that people were getting, you know, a rebate. And if you, um, you'd have to use a lot of carbon to come out, you know, worse off than you are now. Um, but, and that would really ripple through the economy. And, um, but there's, you know, there's no way we're getting that right now. Uh, and I don't know if we, we ever will, but, you know, there's going to be more and more talk about that. You're going to hear more and more about that because it's the only tool that in within the economic system we have right now that people can think of to really make a difference. Yeah. Elizabeth, I want to respect your time. I know you have a lot going on right now, so I'll just leave here with one more question. Is there anything that you want to talk about? Um, that you want to let our audience know about, maybe anything about your book, audio books, anything you're working on, um, just let us know. Okay. Well, I, I want, I will, I'm going to end with a, um, with a plea to people, to your listeners, which is, you know, we really need, um, 
and this is this is not my book. My book is is a lot more you know focused on kind of really big picture issues, um, but also you know telling a bunch of stories that I hope actually are kind of fun stories to be honest, even though the subject is very very heavy. Um, but the plea is that you know American politics have really been stuck on this issue, and I, I don't even know if your listenership is mostly American or around the world, but but around the world politics have been stuck on this issue, and and people we need you know a lot of people power to unstick them, um, and so that would be I guess the note that I would leave on you know make me if you are concerned about this these issues climate change in particular which you know. Lord knows you should be, <laughs> then then make your voices heard to your elected officials. And when you go to vote, uh, vote for those who take this issue seriously, because that's the only way things things can get done. Perfect. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.